The rental market is uh, in the worst state we've seen it for the 20 years we've been in business. I mean, just over the last 10 years, to put it in perspective, we've got the least amount of rooms available, or at least it was that was the case last year. And over that period of time, the, the number of people looking have tripled. So it really is a you know, crazy discrepancy of supply and demand. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today, I'm joined by Rupert Hunt, the founder and CEO of Spare Room. The business originally started in 2004 as a London-focused rental website, but later pivoted into what we know Spare Room as today. Now the UK's largest flat-sharing website, Spare Room brings together people every three minutes. After launching in the US in 2016, Rupert's love of connecting people and bringing them together is what drives his work today. So, Rupert, we're here to talk all about it and your personal journey. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Thank you. Okay, Rupert, tell me a little bit about your your background. Like, tell me a little bit about growing up. Why do you think some of that unique early experience in life took you to doing this? Well, well I grew up on a farm. My dad was uh, a butcher. And, uh, you know, I had livestock on the farm and a slaughterhouse. Uh, so I sort of, I guess I grew up around entrepreneurship. I was also really into music. And uh, actually, one of my sort of earliest experiences I remember was kind of combining the two. My dad used to have peacocks on his farm. And I uh, used to collect the feathers and sell them uh, to a local flower shop and uh, buy myself Beatles albums with them. Um, which, you know, I always assumed was my down to about my love of music, but I guess it's also where my entrepreneurship came from. <laughs> that actually is a relevant point though, right? Your, your love of music is kind of the thing that connected you into this world of uh, entrepreneurship. So t- take me through that. Yeah. So I, I suppose my journey really began doing pop music degree at university of all things. You know, through that, I met my bandmates who I later moved down to London with. Uh, to try and make it big. <laughs> um, and I also uh, had a optional module in the final year uh, on web development, which, you know, started my love and fascination of, you know, the internet and building web businesses. And yeah, we moved down after graduation and um, had a real struggle trying to find somewhere to live. You know, back then the, the process was, um you know, the main place to find uh, flats was in a classified ads newspaper called The Loot that came out three times a week. Um, you'd <laughs> queue up at the newsagent waiting for them to come out and you'd, you know, trawl through these very basic text-based ads. Is it still going? I don't know, to be honest. I doubt it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it used to be, I don't know, I can't remember how many characters they were, but very short, just text-based ads. So no photographs, no maps. And there'd either be a plain text ad or a bold ad, which I actually you know, stole that name for the bold ads on Spare Room. And you know, they're, they're still called that today. What would often happen is you'd call them up and by, you know, by that point, they'd be gone. Um, and our budget was you know, so low. Um, we could barely afford anything. And we ended up in Bromley by Bow, which at the time um, was, you know, a bit of a desolate wasteland, really, and very, yes, very dicey. <laughs> um, I just remember the sort of walls surrounding the flat had like uh, shards of glass uh, embedded in the cement to, you know, keep out intruders. And we certainly didn't dare go in the local pub for fear of getting knifed. <laughs> but yeah, that was my first sort of introduction to, to, to sharing in London. And 
Yeah, although I, I, at that point I hadn't come across sharing with strangers, and uh, that's not something that was on my radar at that point. It was actually my my girlfriend at the time who I suppose accidentally introduced me to that because uh, our, our early days uh, as a band in London were a little bit rocky. Because you know, although I'd like to say, like to think I'm a, I'm a great flatmate these days, I was kind of a bit of an archetypal bad flatmate back then in some ways because <laughs> a i wasn't very tidy and and b i had a girlfriend who came for the weekend and then never left um which is quite a classic thing for yeah housemates to fall out over and yeah we certainly had some friction over that you know and i was trying to encourage her to to go and find her own place to live but you know she was more skint than i was at the time and it was at that point we sort of the, the flat sharing came a bit on our radar i think someone maybe. I don't know if someone told us about it or we saw it in the loot, but, uh, you know, it was the only thing that was in her price bracket. So, you know, but she was, of course, saying, oh, I don't want to live with strangers. And at that point, I was thinking, well, yeah, I'm not sure I like the sound of that either, but I guess you've got no choice. <laughs> and I still remember the sort of first uh, viewing she went on and her sort of, you know, telling me the story and, and how, yeah how eye-opening it was. Uh, she went to some viewing in Greenwich and this guy answered the door and, and you know, brought her inside and introduced her to all these flatmates who were busy preparing food for dinner and then went through quite a formal process, you know, sort of deciding whether or not they were compatible and going through house rules. And, you know, she didn't move in there, but it was, <laughs> it was quite a surprise. So yeah, my, uh, our experience trying to find, you know, a whole place to live uh, inspired what became spare room eventually a website called into london.com and originally that was intended as a place to find property lettings and sales uh, you could advertise privately um, or you or agents could advertise and i spent many months coding perfecting these very cool feature features and i think it was on the last afternoon before i launched it I bolted on a very simple flat share notice board inspired by my girlfriend's experiences uh, trying to find a room to rent. And to my sort of surprise and, and dismay, <laughs> that was the bit that got all the, you know, started to get traction while the rest of it gathered dust. It, it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with that. And I think for, a lot, for a, quite a while, I was, you know, still determined for that side of things to to, to take off and it was just because I hadn't spent the right amount of time on it I hadn't done the right thing but ultimately I realized that that was where the demand clearly was and where um, I was uh, taking hold of a niche and so I sort of kept optimizing it developing it and eventually canned the rest <laughs> and uh, yeah and then when I moved back home in order to spend more time on the business without you know the, the expense of living in London I then launch spare room as the national version of that. Okay, so with the like the very concept in itself, there's some sort of irony that just to launch the business, you've moved back in with your parents and uh, <laughs> use their spare room. But when you're actually trying to get traction for a business like this in the early days, you've got no people, no money. You've spent a long time like sort of squirreling away to get it live. Like, how did you get it out and noticed by people? Like, what was your personal plan in getting this? Uh, concept to become essentially famous obviously over time you know with enough grit some things do take hold 
But Spare Room has got to one of those sort of statuses in the UK. Like, it is famous, right? It is known. You mm. obviously should be very proud of that. But it's not really a foregone conclusion at this point. So how did you get the name out there? How did you get the concept out there? And more to the point, uh, how did you get people to not find it weird? Um, so it, it was it was a challenge because I, I didn't have any money. And I, and I often say that um, if I had have got funding, I don't believe I would have been successful because I think it would have been just too easy spending someone else's money on advertising that doesn't work. Whereas I had to be sort of creative and resourceful, uh, you know, uh, and sort of leverage what I could to grow. And there was all sorts of things I used back then to, to try to do that, some of which, you know, might have some relevance today, some not so much. SEO, I guess, was perhaps the big foundational one. Uh, you know, it's something that I had, you know, learned in my day job um, and had become pretty good at that. But also... For instance, the Loop newspaper I just talked about, we used to resell branded ads in there uh, in such a way that we got it, we got our costs covered by our advertisers who we would upsell, you know, an advert in the Loop to, and they would get a better deal than if they bought a bold ad directly with the Loot. But we would have our our logo on every single advert. So over time, we were kind of <laughs> getting our brand better known, you know, the Loot in that area in their own newspaper, which was. Yeah, which I think was good. And uh, and also publicity, I think, was an important part of our growth. In fact, the first person um, I hired had this incredible idea. I mean, it was a fr- it was, She was the girlfriend of a family friend. And over a drink and sort of meeting this new girlfriend, she told me this incredible idea for speed flat mating, which was speed dating for your flatmates. And I tried to convince her over this beer to uh, come and work for me. Uh, and and we would do it. You know, I said to her, I, I'm not 100% sure I'll be able to pay you. <laughs> I can sort of see that now the money's starting to come in, that maybe by the end of next month, I'll be able to pay your, your wages, but you're going to have to take a bit of a leap of faith. And thankfully she did. And she's still with the business today. But yeah, that was an exciting time. We So we tried to pull this uh, event together and ended up with, I think, six people. Um, and we'd done, we'd spent what seemed like a lot of money back then. Cause I didn't, as I said, I didn't have much money. I was just maxing out credit cards. I think it was 125 pounds on a freelancer doing a press release. And we got the Enfield advertiser there. I think it was, they're the only ones who answered. Uh, so to us, it was like already a flop before we'd even started, but you know, the, the attendees enjoyed it. There was a nice little vibe, even though there wasn't many people. And, you know, this journalist was very interested and actually spent a lot of time, you know, asking questions and, and ran the piece. Uh, but we thought, you know, nothing else of it. And we sort of, uh, maybe we run more, maybe not. Uh, but then a week later, a journalist from the Times called up and said, when's your next event? And I was like, when's our next event? <laughs> and we said, oh, Thursday. And so we sort of quickly cobbled together this event uh, in Islington and managed to get, I think it was about 12 people there this time. And we were on the front cover of the property section of the Times the following Saturday. And after that, it all sort of blew up. We had an uh, you know, oversubscribed event in Tooting with something like, I think it was 30, 30 or 40 people there. Uh, I think there was two TV crews, uh, several radio stations and like seven journalists all show up uh, and just me and Gemma there trying to run the event and answer all their questions. So that was, yeah, an exciting moment and definitely helped with word of mouth and sort of getting the brand out there for sure. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. 
It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So I guess taking this journey further, you launch in the US in 2016. And you, uh, I guess the first question is, you know, why? Like, do you feel like you had saturated the whole of the UK market and sort of taken it as far as it can go? And then it's off to pastures new. And also, how do you launch in a competitive market like that? You know, is it a completely different beast where you've gone from nobody, but also no competitors, no awareness of a solution to a problem to then launching in the USA when obviously I assume there are a variety of, uh, of concepts that you'd be competing with? Yes, it was a, a very different experience. And yeah, the reason we launched there is, yes, we'd sort of become the number one in the UK and uh, we could see that there was uh, a a big market over there, but also the sort of incumbent site serving that market uh, wasn't doing so very well. And you know, it's uh, Craigslist who is still the the dominant place over there, and they you know suffer from you know being scammed all the time. And you know, as you probably know, a website that hasn't changed since 1992. So we could definitely see where we could serve the market better. But yeah, it was it was a big challenge as we perhaps sort of knew it would be. And we did try to repeat some of the, the successful things from the growth in the UK. For instance, we launched speed uh, roommating there, as we called it there, because uh, I've said I don't know what a flatmate is. And yeah, we got we had some decent coverage from that, actually. We, I think we had, we actually probably had more coverage there, really. However, it didn't quite have the same impact in terms of, you know, speed of growth. But SEO has been a big part of it. And yeah, it's definitely taken quite a while to get to the point that we are now where we're the sort of the leading um, dedicated roommate service. One of the things I did was I moved over there in 2017. That definitely helped sort of focus things and, and get things moving better. I also, uh, I, 
I also advertise for for roommates on on spareroom.com uh, and uh, uh, to sort of get some you know publicity around that. Where did and you it, move? Uh, to the West Village. Um, I rented a, a very nice apartment right, okay. there. And, yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so you rent a nice apartment there, and then you basically use spare room to try and bring in new people. And then, how yeah. would that work? Would you try and do short, short term, short term rentals so that you got to cycle a few more experience, a few more people experiencing it? The trouble is that because we're we're about longer term residential lets, it probably wouldn't have worked that really to do it. Uh, you know, even though you might have got a little bit more publicity out of it, I think <laughs> it wouldn't have been quite on brand because I guess that's more Airbnb's territory the shorter term stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I lived with them there for, how long was it? Six or eight months. I can't just remember now, but yeah, it was, yeah, very interesting experience. So what was your, like moving forward? So you've, you've grown through the UK, become the number one, moved overseas, realized actually, okay, same lesson everyone learns about America. This is a lot harder than I first anticipated. I'll have to go over there and try and understand the market myself better. And that yeah. was in 2017. It's now 2023. So you're still in the business. You're still the founder CEO. So, what like what is the state of the business now? Like, how would you describe it? You know, what's his positioning in the US, UK? What are your growth opportunities? How are you feeling about it all still? Because you know, it's been a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's been twenty years, and uh, you know, I've definitely had my my dips in enthusiasm, I guess. But uh, there's always some new challenge, and yeah, at the moment we're in the UK, we're we're still the number one. And in the US, the number one dedicated service, but probably not the number one place to find roommates because Craigslist still holds that crown. So we've still got work to do over there. We're also starting to explore how AI can potentially help with uh, getting better matches because I think that's sort of, that's what excites me the most, I think, is, is about creating happier flat shares because it is, you know, it's such an important decision and one that could you know, can be two extremes and anything in between, you know, if you get it right, it can be such an incredible experience. Um, you know, I absolutely love my current housemate and we get on very well. Um, but I, unfortunately I've never had a really bad experience, but, uh, you know, even, a even not amazing is, you know, it's just, it's not so much, it's not so good. Um, and I've certainly heard some horror stories if you get it really wrong. Okay. So I guess I'd love to come on to some lessons that you've learned over your journey hmm. because there are not many, uh, CEOs of household brands that have been there for 20 years, still, uh, you know, whether motivated or just disciplined enough to be continuing and enjoying the journey. I'd love to know what your most challenging experience has been over the last 20 years. What's something that you really reflect on as a difficult moment or a difficult decision you had to overcome? So I think one challenge is when we sort of became we'd sort of achieved our goals of becoming the place to find a room and we'd uh the other thing is we really wanted to legitimize the market and sort of bring it out of the shadows you know in the earlier days it was never even talked about in the press and i think we we, we you know really achieved that but I did, I did find it a bit of a struggle for a while sort of motivating myself and others like what's the next what's the next goal you know it's it's definitely more exciting sort of uh, getting somewhere than once you've actually reached it and what got me out of this was I decided to use my own site for the first time and and get housemates you know I'd only ever lived with friends as I mentioned earlier and yeah I advertised on spare room um, and also went to our events and got a couple of housemates and as a sort of learning experience it was you know so much more powerful than I ever imagined 
in terms of you know giving me insights into what was working what wasn't in the business but what was really surprising is just how much i loved it and you know and the realization that living with the right people is better than living on your own and i've lived with i think 17 people since then in the last 10 years um from ages 5 to 50 believe it or not (laughs) and yeah and uh it's something I will, I'm sure I'll continue to do. But anyway, this sort of definitely gave me a new perspective on the business and a, a new purpose, which is to sort of, yeah, about creating happier flat shares and promoting the benefits of sharing, you know, because I know for some people it's obviously a financial necessity, but, the, you know, there are some real positives to, to doing so. But everyone sort of aspires to living alone, which I would argue is not... <laughs> Is not the way to be. Well, just just to give you just to give you a, 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 a sorry, just to give you a story that you might appreciate. Mm. And I appreciate. I've just interrupted you halfway through your story, but it did spark a thought. Mm. You said everyone aspires to live alone, and you said you know happier flat shares and sort of uh, you know promoting happiness. Mm. My father died just over ten years ago, and my I moved back in with my mum for a while, and then it was time for me to move back out again, and. She didn't really know what to do because she just wasn't used to living on her own. And she'd grown up, obviously, the last you know 25 years, etc., had been with other people in the house. So we actually convinced her to go on spare room. And mm. initially, obviously, as you imagine, a, you know, lady in her late 60s, you know, mid 60s, not the first thing that she would think to do and was, uh, you know, a lot of the, but, but who and how will I know? And, oh, I'm set in my ways and all of these things. Anyway, the very long story short here is she's had flatmates from Spare Room like for pretty much the last decade. Oh, really? Like ever since. Um, she's, honestly, it's been transformational for her. They've not all been perfect. And she's yeah. got lots of funny stories from it as well, which is actually also part of the entertainment. There's a sort of roll the dice angle where obviously you meet them first, yeah. but over the long term, it's been transformational for her happiness, her resilience, her ability to sort of get back to being her best self. And she's made some amazing friends. And, you know, what's lovely about it is quite often it's been younger people. So people in their you know, mid-20s to mid-30s who are sort of coming to London for whatever job it might be, as you might imagine, often from overseas, but also from other parts of the UK. And um, she's just struck up these really lovely friendships. And it's so, so, so sweet. And wow. um, I mean, you've got like literally a lifelong customer out of my mum now because <laughs> she just can't really imagine not, she can't, she couldn't imagine living alone. Um, it's been 10 years now as your customer. So wow. That's a fantastic story. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I was really excited to talk to you because I, I was excited to tell you this story. But mm. my mum didn't want to be alone. Like she did, she thought maybe she did originally, but she really didn't. But she also wasn't ready to meet someone else. And this has just been such a great way for her to just adjust to other aspects too, which is feeling safe, safe in her home as well, yeah. right? Like having someone that she does trust there rather than being alone. There's all these other aspects to it. So when it comes down to loneliness, when it comes down to happiness, there's that sort of experience there that I think might fall outside of what you think your typical customer is, but actually a really important use case for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually some of the biggest growing or fastest growing age groups tend to be this sort of, uh, yeah, 50 plus, 60 plus. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, great. (laughs) So in terms of other challenges I've had, counterintuitively, 
uh, a couple of them were offers I've been made on the business in the past. Uh, one in particular, which you know was an offer I couldn't refuse, and I spent many months soul searching and yeah, trying to figure out what I wanted to do because you know, to friends and family, it was a bit of a no-brainer. And actually, little aside here is I'm using my friend's flat, who was a friend I met through this offer, the company offering. Um, introduced me to him as a sort of testimonial of selling to them. And what I actually wanted to ask him was, what's it like after after selling? You know, <laughs> what are you doing with your life? And um, we ended up becoming really good friends, but I sort of realized that, you know, we had a diff- you know, different needs and outlook and so on. And uh, it sort of helped me arrive at my conclusion and actually uh, refuse them. <laughs> but... Yeah, and I've I've always struggled with this idea of an you know an exit strategy. You know, I was, when I was in the band, we dreamed about making enough money to carry on being in the band. So you know, it seems odd to <laughs> you know get successful and then get out of it. Interesting. So spare room is the band in this case, right? And so for you, it's a bit like if you don't have an idea of a different band you'd like to start, then why would you leave the one that's bringing you so much joy? Yeah, exactly. And it definitely has scratched a lot of the same itches that. But music does for me, you know, it's a creative pursuit and it's, you know, it, it impacts people, impacts people's lives. And as we said just before about the impact of sharing and how, it, you know, it can be the source of, you know, real happiness. So for clarity, you turned down, I'm presuming a multi-million dollar or pound offer. I'm sure you don't be specific. <laughs> <laughs> but I will fill in some obvious gaps here. Life changing is usually in those kind of realms. Yeah. Plus, you're a hundred percent shareholder, right? You've got no investors. Yeah. Well, actually, ninety five percent. So that first employee, I gave ninety five percent. But good. I think ninety five percent is enough, enough to connect some decent dots without forcing you to say anything. So, um, life changing amount of money. And then the question sort of becomes, well, okay, what would I do with that much money? The question that I'd have mm. to you though is obviously most founders do an earnout, right? They stay at the company quite often. So why wasn't that an option that you were interested in considering anyway and sort of have your cake and eat it too, if you will? Yeah, good question. Um, and certainly uh, an earnout was part of the, the deal, as you'd expect. I guess it just, I mean, one of, uh, I've always loved being independent. I think it's been, yeah, it means that we we can focus 100% on pleasing the customers, not investors. I just think it'd be a completely different dynamic if, you know, someone else owned the business and I was answering to them. I, I don't think I would enjoy it as much and I would be, you know, fearful of Sparum's future. You know, it, it's not that I didn't trust them and their intentions, but you just don't know who might buy the business off them in the future and so on. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So you decide to remain in control. Part of that, I guess, decision is therefore around, you know, how you make money in your life, right? How incentives work and what entrepreneurs should aim for. So what is your view on that? Because you're right. You're completely right. Most founders I speak to do build a business, not with a sense of exiting it, but bloody hell, give someone 10 years inside the same business. And that that thought does start to percolate, of course, and especially even more so if you have investors. So the question becomes... If that's the normal route, what do you think should be more perceived as the quote-unquote normal route? I mean, this isn't going to be a popular uh, opinion amongst other business owners, I suspect, but I don't, for Thank instance... God, we don't want everything agree. sounding the same now, do we? 
Um, yeah, I don't. I don't agree with some of the tax incentives that uh, are given to entrepreneurs, like entrepreneurs' relief, capital gains tax. Um, I think it feeds this, you know, culture that's developed of you know getting massive investment, growing fast, selling fast, or you know blowing up fast, rather than you know trying to build a sustainable business for the long term and actually making a profit. Uh, you know, not that I don't think um, entrepreneurs should be rewarded for their efforts, but I think there could be other ways of of doing so. You know, f- through running the business, because you know, you know, incentivizing them to sell business kind of, you know, whether intentionally or not favors big corporations, because that's generally where the business goes and where the money comes from. And and what we find is a lot of this wealth then disappears from local economies and gravitates to London or to, you know, or abroad. My dad often talks about his, you know, days running his butcher shop and, and how in those days, you know, these towns outside of London, my dad was from Stockport, was sort of thriving independence of places in their own right and you know all these there'd be all these sort of uh, successful local businesses like butchers bakers candlestick makers you know and uh and they would all sort of support each other and keep the money circulating locally you know like the successful butcher might buy a, a, a new car from the local car dealer and so on and he sort of talks about in the sort of 80s as supermarkets started to take hold and would you know buy out these local businesses and of course that wealth then moves out of the area and yeah these areas just become less and less independent and more like sort of yeah just sort of satellites of london really and while i think this trend has been reversing to some extent you know i think there's definitely a, obviously a drive in recent times to buying local and to favoring purpose-led artisan style businesses i think there's still a long way to go and you know these incentives aren't helping i mean to go back to my offer the reason why it was you know it was really was a no-brainer from a financial decision because you you're in, generally given an offer based on a multiple of your profit so on the face of it you think well okay so i'd have to work in the business that many years to get that organically which is already a long time and that's if you actually stay in business which is a big if you know, in you know, in the world of the web, a lot of, a lot can change in a few years. But it's not as simple as that because, you know, for every pound of these profits that they're giving you multiple on, you then would pay corporation tax and income tax, and actually would take several lifetimes to to actually accumulate that organically. So, yeah, I just feel that it would be more sensible to incentivize on the running of the business rather than the selling of it. I think that would be you know, good for everyone. What, what would that look like? like? As in, do you have a practical example of what an incentive like that might be? So if you were to lobby government, because I think there's really interesting opinions that you have there, mm. but like everything, right? You know, when in startup land, it's uh, called don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. So <laughs> I think I agree with your, I agree with your assessment. I think it's fascinating, but what would be a better alignment? Well, I don't want to pretend that I have all the answers to this. I mean, we've been lobbying government about the rental market, which I feel like I can uh, (laughs) say with more confidence. But uh, I mean, I guess uh, it could be around, you know, well, there's obviously the corporation income tax, but whether that would be 
uh, the way to do it or not, I don't know. Uh, I'm afraid I, I, I can only come with the problems really on, on that front <laughs> rather than the solutions. Okay, so not your area of expertise, fair enough, but we're not talking to a, a government tax expert in fairness. We are talking to a rental expert. So where does your lobbying sit? What can we do about the rental market? That is a huge problem. It's probably a broader problem, more interesting to a bunch of people as well. So what are the problems? And more importantly, Rupert, what are the solutions? Yeah, the rental market is uh, in the worst state we've seen it for the 20 years we've been in business. I mean, just over the last 10 years, to put it in perspective, we've got the least amount of rooms available, or at least it was that was the case last year. And over that period of time, there are, the number of people looking have tripled. So it really is a you know, a crazy discrepancy of supply and demand, uh, which of course has pushed rental prices up to just stupid heights. And it means that tenants are having a, you know, a terrible time, you know, even finding something, never mind affording it. And this is the reason for this is I think a lot of it has been uh, government legislation changes. We've seen landlords leaving the market since. 2017, when some changes came into force, and you know, and were sort of graduated over a, a number of years, and so yeah, supply has slowly been drying up. And according to our user base of landlords, there will, there's more still to leave yet. So I think the problem may get worse before it gets better. So we've been putting together some research, uh, you know, and pulling out data from our from our database to. Uh, go to decision makers, policymakers, and government to try to find some solutions for this. I think the key two areas that we see is, first of all, leveling the playing field between residential lets and holiday lets. So whether deliberately or accidentally, the market is now incentivizing landlords to move to holiday, holiday lets over residential lets, which is just insane because... We've got a rental crisis, not a hotel room crisis. And so, and, and then the other area, I think the, the, the quickest fix from our perspective is to try to convince more homeowners to take in lodgers. There are 26 million empty bedrooms in England alone at the moment. And if we, if we convinced just three and a half percent of them would create a virtual city the size of Liverpool, for, for instance... Uh, and if we convince less than 2% of them, we would redress this supply-demand imbalance and force rents down to you know where they were before all this began. So yeah, so we're, we're, we've just been starting that now, and uh, hopefully we'll have the same success as we had back in 2015 when we managed to uh, increase the rent-a-room scheme allowance for homeowners as an yeah, incentive for them to take in lodges. I guess one challenge we have, though, with it is that Many homeowners, even though it, 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 you know, it's a time of you know rising financial pressure from whether it be utilities or mortgage rates, there's still preconceptions about sharing. You know, who, who am I going to get in, and will I lose my privacy? And these are all the same questions that I had on my mind when I first did it ten years ago. And yeah, all I could say is, you know, it's <laughs> try it, and you'll see that those are. They aren't true and, you know, you'll have a great experience. There's sort of two things that come up for me there. I assume for most people, although obviously I'm, try I'm trying to come at this from a non-biased point of view, which is difficult, mm -hmm. isn't it? Because you only have your lived experience. So mm. for me, I think what would be challenging is as a young parent, you're obviously conscious that you've got a child around. And so 
I'm my first question to you is do you see a difference in um, attitude and behavior from parents to uh, couples and singles who don't have kids is there any trend or obvious stat that you're aware of um it's certainly more challenging both uh, as uh, sort of uh, living landlords uh, there's certainly a lot more to consider there and also we hear a lot from single parents looking for places to stay and in fact my my current housemate who uh, is a housemate for the second time so he first uh, moved in with me i think about eight years ago uh, one of the neighbors uh, who i'm friendly with came around and introduced me and you know he, this guy had just left uh, left a marriage and needed somewhere to stay and we went out for cocktails and by the end of the evening i had a new housemate and and then he went away and, and had a child with someone new and this relationship has now fallen apart and he's uh, back in the house. And But he was trying to find somewhere on spare room where he could have his child for half the time. And was yeah, it was definitely was struggling. It was, it's definitely a, it's challenging for single parents. It's not impossible, but it's, uh, you know, it's, there's, less, there's less availability for sure. And in the end, I've sort of converted one of the empty rooms into uh, a room for his daughter with her and he's been <laughs> decorating it with uh, unicorns and rainbows and she's now there about a third of the time at the moment which is a new experience for me. Yeah I mean I suppose the interesting flip side of this is it's quite a nice try before you buy uh, opportunity <laughs> for parenting isn't it? Not, not sure if you want kids mm. this is probably a decent <laughs> way of figuring out whether you might or not. True. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, the other question I had on this, by the way, is I assume, um, again, this is an assumption, um, but it's also what my mum felt. My mum felt, you know, her biggest concern was actually the kitchen. Everything else was just much more relaxed about, but it was the idea of sort of the privacy in the kitchen. She enjoys to cook. That's quite a common thing. And I think, you know, from my perspective of having someone stay over spare room, that'd be my first thought as well, was like, well, how does one share a kitchen? And People are all different ends of a scale of cleanliness when it comes to a kitchen as well. So uh, I'm curious, is that like your most common objection or are there sort of other questions? Uh, I think that's definitely a common one that people fall out about and are concerned about. And I've certainly had mixed experiences with that, I think. I've certainly found that cooking for each other or together goes a long way. And, it, you know, it's certainly one of my favorite things to do. Uh, we often cook for each other and eat together. And I think that's a really... Yeah, positive way to live and sort of yeah digest the food and the day together and uh, but uh, I think certainly trying to be honest with each other about these you know rel you know on the face of it trivial things like tidiness and attitudes to washing up and all that sort of thing you know it's probably best to be honest about those things rather than putting on your you know you know pretending it you'll put this perfect housemate when you're uh, trying to work each other out because yeah they, those are potential clashing points. Okay. 20 years running the same business. Congratulations, by the way. That's really impressive staying power. And you've kind of got the <laughs> attitude of someone who seems like you'd be happy doing it for another 20 years as well, which I think is like a super, you know, it's very important uh, internal motivation and drive that mm. does seem to emanate from you more so than other people, I would say. How tempted have you been in that time to start other things? Like how often has your mind kind of become distracted or someone's come to you i'm sure you know a successful ceo right build 
a well-known household brand, you must have had offers to start other things. You must have had times when you've been distracted. Um, has that happened? And what have you done about it? <laughs> all the time, yeah. And all of the above, you know, me coming up with new ideas, people coming to me with ideas, people coming with me asking them to invest, all sorts of things. And it's uh, and it's and it's all very alluring, sort of these new ideas, especially when you start to you know get your first successes. Uh, with something you suddenly think oh i could do that and and you know it's often this you know shiny new thing which will then take your attention and uh, but i found it to be just always a distraction and i will start this this new business and it will get a bit too much of my attention to start with and uh you know take focus away from spare room but ultimately yeah you i think it's very hard to to give you know enough attention on multiple things to make them a success so i kind of after a few times learning this lesson i became a lot stricter with myself and i sort of you know it's just sort of realizing that these ideas are sort of ten a penny and you know it's execution that matters and sometimes you've just got to learn to let stuff go however amazing they sound just let someone else have that (laughs) so if that's the case does that mean if that's like your overall philosophical point of view Mm. do you see that changing and if not, does that technically mean that you'll be running spare room for the rest of your life and nothing else? I guess the question really is sort of wrapped up in, you know, what does it take to change your mind over a belief like that? Or is that mm. a strong belief strongly held? I certainly never say never in terms of, I mean, who knows what what's around the corner and, and whether I'll suddenly not want to run spare room anymore if, or if something else comes up. And I've certainly become more distracted in recent times by other you know, little projects, but they tend to be more passion-based things rather than business. And yeah, certainly I, you know, I'm, I'm not closed off to it. It's not like this is some firm held belief that I, um, <laughs> that's so totally rigid. I just find it generally a good thing to remind myself of because it's, it's so easy to lose sight of what's important and where, you know, where your time should be spent. And that, and that runs true within the business itself. You know, you can often get very sidetracked and focused on some new idea for the business and then sort of slightly lose sight and and, uh, and lose attention on some of the really core important things and they can suddenly become degraded or yeah <laughs> so never say never but obviously you so far have not taken funding You've grown your business to become the biggest in the UK, one of the biggest players in the US in the space. How many people do you employ? Uh, it's a, around 90. Right, around 90 people employed all through your rigor and hard work. And for certainly now, you have no intentions whatsoever to either sell the business or move on in your capacity as CEO because execution is nine-tenths of the law and you are focused and prepared at like for what you need to do to execute and get the company more successful. The question is, what does success mean to you? And for context, it's because for a lot of founders, it would be a meaningful exit, uh, something around potentially employing people, some kind of impact, whatever. But with you, you know, you seem in that unusual place where you've done some clearly self-development work and understood yourself enough to know what contentment looks and feels like. Mm. So potentially some of the some of the insights you get from guests where they think they wanted X and that was success and then they realised after the fact not. You seem to have sort of 
somehow sidestepped that with enough self-inquiry to realize that you got it pretty good and you're quite content and happy. So I think you're an interesting person to ask what success actually is and what are you aiming for? Good question. Yeah, I mean, I certainly realized, you know, perhaps around that time when I I made that offer that, you know, it was... It wasn't about the money. It was about the journey. And it's about the challenges that come along uh, during that. I think I also found a good balance in terms of how much of myself and my time I put into the business. I mean, it's still probably by most people's standards far too much, but certainly compared to the early days where I would just could never go on holiday and have sleepless nights. So I, th- I think it both gives me the opportunity to have you know an interesting exciting life but also uh, keeps me fulfilled with these challenges and gives me a sense of purpose this is what you know gets me up in the morning and I, and I feel like you know a, a fear of selling would be not having that purpose and you know I, I see my friend who's flat I'm in and he's having a lovely life but I just know that I I couldn't sp- uh, spend you know so, quite so much leisure time without losing the plot <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's a very common thing, right? Which is once you, if you're entrepreneurial, for sure, Mm. you are trying to find the expression for your creativity, which means that when you sell a business, you end up starting another one anyway, and you're back in the same saddle, same trap. But are you guaranteed to be fulfilling the same purpose or did you have it so good before? It is a fascinating (laughs) challenge. Yeah, no, that's exactly Um, it. Well, on that note, I would love to know for our listeners, what would be your advice for entrepreneurs who are looking to find their purpose in their work, most importantly. Yeah, I guess not to be focused on on the money, um, on on invest, you know, on getting some huge funding and and on some wildly big idea that's, you know, probably not going to work. You know, I feel like it's too common to try to be the next Instagram, the next TikTok, the next whatever unicorn business. Whereas actually there's, there's thousands and thousands of other, you know, very niche businesses you could be getting into and building a success out of. Yeah, that's the one amazing thing on you know online and in a global environment is even the tiniest niches can be huge. And I think finding something that resonates with you that um, either is a passion or could become a passion and uh, you know is the way to go. And yeah, look for that sense of purpose. Figure out what your why is. Beautifully said. Rupert, thank you so much for joining me on Secret Leaders. I hope Spare Room continues for another 20 years with you at the helm, so long as you want to do it, of course. Not forcing you, but so long as you continue (laughs) to find that uh, beautiful mix of motivation and discipline together. It's clearly worked very well for Spare Room so far. So on behalf of my mum and myself, thank you for everything. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders.
This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.